Hi, and welcome to Communicating Climate Change, a podcast dedicated to helping you do exactly that. I'm Dickon, and I'll be your host as we dig deep into the best practices and the worst offences, always looking for ways to help you and me improve our abilities to engage, empower, and ultimately activate audiences on climate-related issues. This episode features a conversation with Kevin Green of International Conservation and Development Organization, RARE. It was recorded in October 2023. Kevin leads RARE's Center for Behavior and the Environment, collaborating with field staff, partners, and researchers in bringing the best insights from the science of human behavior to bear on the world's most pressing environmental challenges. Kevin, who holds a master's degree in international development and economics from Johns Hopkins University and a bachelor's degree in anthropology and sociology from Washington and Lee University, is a faculty member of the Kinship Conservation Fellows Program. He's previously held roles in research at the Nature Conservancy and the World Watch Institute. Amongst other things, Kevin and I discussed RARE's eight principles for effective and inviting climate communication, the unrivaled ability that humans have for solving certain types of problems, and the challenge communicators therefore face in communicating climate change in such a way that makes it the type of problem we're already adept at solving. So, let's get on with it. This is Communicating Climate Change with Kevin Green. I'll jump in with the first one. It's nice and big and broad. From your perspective, how can communication help mitigate the worst effects of climate change in the first place? Mitigating climate change is sort of the mother of all communication challenges. And I don't just mean that from like a polarization perspective or that climate change needs a rebrand or something. I mean, maybe this is stating the obvious, but actually dealing with the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere and deciding what the acceptable amount is and, and actually achieving that is probably the biggest coordination challenge our species has maybe ever faced. And coordination is, is literally all about communication. So, you know, I guess I wouldn't say communication helps, I would say it's the main thing. Each of the following questions takes from one of Rare's eight principles for effective and inviting climate communications. And the first one is make it personal. So the question is, could you please share a personal experience or story that inspired your commitment to addressing environmental behavior change? Sure. I think the the sort of trite but, but true answer to that is just having children. You know, I have a seven-year-old daughter, Nellie, and a, and a five-year-old son, Cyrus, and having you know responsibility for having brought them into the world and sort of being unsatisfied with the notion that the sustainability of our life on this planet or even the habitability of the planet is sort of entirely outside my and their locus of control. You know, I guess sort of ideologically or just constitutionally, I'm drawn to the premises of behavior change and the sort of capacity that we as individuals have to affect change through our own behavior. So that's maybe my, you know, very predictable uh, answer about being a parent, but maybe with kind of a lens toward why this notion of behavior change. Maybe also to add a bit of texture, my family and I, we live on a small farm in, in rural Virginia in the, in the United States, where we, we produce certified naturally grown uh, cut flowers and we raise sheep. And I, I think that lifestyle lends itself to, to this way of thinking. You know, we have decisions that we have to make every day that have a direct impact on this place. And we can see with, with our eyes and, and feel with our hands the, the results of those decisions. So, you know, it very quickly sort of reifies these abstract concepts of sustainability in a way that I think also lends itself to this kind of mindset that I guess I'm describing myself as having. You know, choices matter, behavior matters. 
I'm not being glib. I recognize that there's a complex system at work. And I, I guess I just insist on the fact of being a part of that system and therefore able to affect, you know, even if, if minimal, some influence over it. Number two is make it accessible. So we do often hear about the need for accessible language in climate communications. If someone wanted to make their climate messaging more accessible, what strategies would you suggest that they consider? And can you perhaps give some examples of how Rare have applied these kinds of strategies in the past? Maybe a, a more accessible way of saying make it accessible is keep it simple. You know, talk about climate change in the context of things people already understand and talk about. This isn't about dumbing it down or condescending or something. It just means being human and meeting people where they are. Talk to others about climate change the way they would want to be talked to. Most people don't respond to like jargon that they're unfamiliar with. With Oh, that's great. Tell me more. Decarbonization is a great example of just not something that's going to get people most excited. And there's plenty of research out there now showing that, you know, sort of plain, obvious language is the best way to get through. Um, I think another aspect of sort of meeting people where they are is identifying the existing cultural identities that are held rather than trying to necessarily turn someone into a climate advocate as an identity. You can save yourself a lot of time and effort and headache by tapping into um, identities that are already strongly held by your audience. So that's very tried and true in Rare's experience um, around the world in sort of inspiring communities to take action. And I think a great example is in the U.S., there's a strong Christian identity in, in many parts, and there's a lot of kind of like scriptural or biblical text that already has the elements you need for caring for Mother Earth or caring for creation. That can be much more accessible to a certain kind of audience than decarbonization. jump into the next one. Make it empowering. What guidance would you provide to communicators seeking to inspire individuals and communities to take meaningful action on climate change? Are there any particular success stories, maybe, that have emerged as a result of Rare's work around making it empowering? I'm glad you used the word inspire. You know, Rare's mission is to inspire change so people in nature thrive. So this notion of inspiring is really, really core. Much of Rare's past work before we really started even thinking about climate action in places like the US and Europe was organized around what we called local pride campaigns that were literally focused on attaching a sense of pride and local identity to the natural resources you know, that were often endemic to specific places. And pride, for instance, is a very empowering and, and inspiring emotion. Of course, we all know that just from what we see people are willing to do in support of their favorite sports team or something, let alone their national identity. Outside of the domain of, of climate action, but a sort of classic foundational rare story is from the first Pride campaign in St. Lucia, run by the, the St. Lucia Forestry Department, who was trying to protect the St. Lucia parrot, Amazona versicolor, which was an, is an endemic bird that was dangerously close to extinction um, because of threats like deforestation and poaching. 
And this initiative happened to coincide with St. Lucia gaining its national independence. And so the team working on this campaign through a, a series of initiatives having to do with like painting all the school buses on the island with the St. Lucia parrot, you know, eventually getting it on the passport, visiting every, literally every classroom on the island, the team that was working on this, all with the goal of tying the St. Lucia parrot, the endemic bird to the island, to the national identity that was in this moment of becoming sort of reaffirmed through independence. I mean, it was tremendously successful in, in doing just that and inspiring an entire island to say, this is our bird, we have to take care of it, and we have the ability to do this. That's the empowering part. And so they, um, they implemented all sorts of protections. And, you know, this was 40 or so years ago. And I happened to be on a trip to St. Lucia, I don't know, five years or so ago. And within five minutes of walking into the forest, saw more St. Lucia parrots than I could count, which was, you know, a very empowering uh, experience for me in terms of seeing the impact of something like this that is entirely built around inspiring change and empowering a community to affect that change. So the next one is make it doable. We see calls for people to act now in response to the climate crisis. These messages rarely tell us exactly what to do. So how does providing individuals with clear instructions on what actions to take contribute to motivating action on climate-related concerns? Good question. You know, if you Google what to do about climate change, you get a lot of, you know, here are 50 things you can do to solve climate change or top 100 things you can change about yourself to stop climate change. And the sort of paradox of choice implicit there is that we want a list of 100 things, but in truth, we, we really, really don't. Uh, it's overwhelming and, and exhausting. And what do we end up doing? Nothing. Uh, because we're we're overloaded. But you know, tell me the the one most important thing I can do and convince me that I have the ability to do it. You know, now we're talking. It's just a fact of nature that people generally don't like to try something they don't think they can succeed at, right? It's called self-efficacy, higher self-efficacy, higher likelihood of action. And so, you know, simplifying those instructions and making them feel doable sometimes can be all it takes, all that's needed to make it happen. At Rare, one of our highest impact behaviors that we focus some of our, our own work on is eating a little bit more plants and a little bit less meat. And that kind of language is really deliberate in the sense of literally when we model out the impact of, hey, what effect can we really have on CO2 if we're focused on this particular behavior? We're not even modeling what does it look like to get some percentage of Americans to go vegan. We're talking about the ones who are eating a ton of meat and what's the impact of having them eat just a little less meat. And even that impact is huge and it's something entirely doable. So it comes down to, again, simplifying. And uh, you said it in your question. I think you said providing clear instructions is, uh, is, is a big deal. The next principle is make it collective. Considering Rare's emphasis on collective action, how would you advise communicators when it comes to fostering collaboration and shared responsibility in climate initiatives? Yeah, well, you know, one of the biggest 
challenges with climate change vis-a-vis the, the, the individual is just that it, it just feels so big. It feels like my contribution, both to the problem and to the solution, can't possibly matter. And there is, there's some truth to that, right? If, if I'm the only one on the planet doing something to reduce my footprint, then it kind of doesn't matter. So my advice is, I guess, to not only inspire the individual as an individual, but, but to help people feel a part of the broader coalition of actors. And I think that's what's really meant by this principle. It doesn't have to be like all of humanity or, or 8 billion people or whatever. In fact, I would argue that it shouldn't be because that can be very abstract. And you know, we certainly didn't evolve to cooperate with 8 billion other people in our evolutionary past. Sometimes you're sort of like, okay, are we acting as individuals or are we coordinating as a species? And both of those are really, really difficult levels on which to be successful. So virtually always, it's even more useful to, to focus on collective action within, you know, to repeat, I guess, a trope now of things that we're talking about, a group or, or identity that is particularly important to the individual and focusing on that level of collective action. Finding those groups of individuals, say, a load of people who like gardening and collectively gardening together. You're not saying grab your shovels and off we go to the protest. Like there are different ways to act in line with those interests. Yeah, that's well said. Yes, exactly. hundred percent. You know, social scientists sometimes call these reference groups, right? We people have many different reference groups um, and some are strongly held and some are loosely held. They might not have anything to do with climate, but they are important coordinating mechanisms that are already existing. And we make our job a lot easier if we tap into those. So the next one is make it normal. If someone wanted to make climate-friendly behaviors feel socially normal within their community, what approaches or examples could you provide to inspire or help them achieve this goal? Again, to state the obvious, people are just more likely to do stuff that they think is normal and less likely to do stuff that they think is weird or abnormal or, or deviant. I mean, for us, this is one of the main ones. This is very significant. Obviously, there's heterogeneity there in terms of like different people's preferences for being normal, but by and large, uh, it's just true. So, you know, just showing people that climate-friendly behaviors are normal makes it safe. And, and sometimes this can mean making hidden behaviors a bit more visible. One of my favorite examples of this is there's a study by one of our collaborators from oh, 10 or 15 years ago now in um, Northern California, where Pacific Gas and Electric, which is the utility that provides power to much of Northern California, they were dealing with, which is quite common, blackouts and brownouts during peak demand. And so they brought in the engineers to come up with a, a solution called Smart AC that can be affixed to home heating um, and air conditioning units to downregulate automatically during peak demand. Once the device is installed, the homeowner doesn't have to do anything except just maybe get a little bit less comfortable during the time when they really want their air conditioning. And they can be hugely effective. And obviously, this is like a classic coordination problem because everyone who's benefiting from PG&E power is better off if everyone is using this because they don't have a blackout or a brownout. But everyone individually is better off if they're the one who doesn't 
you know, cooperate because they get the best of both worlds. So it's a classic coordination problem. And unsurprisingly, they couldn't force people to sign up for this thing. Um, and so nobody did. So they brought in the, um, you know, the economists to come up with what would be the right price incentive that would have the right cost benefit. And they came up with a $25 incentive. It would be a, a rebate on the bill. If they scheduled to have the technician install, they could get this $25 coupon. And they still got almost nobody to sign up for whatever reason. It wasn't worth it to them. So then they called in the behavioral scientist, Eris Ueli. He obviously identified this right away as a coordination problem and decided to focus on specifically this idea of like reputational returns and the notion that this is a very invisible behavior, right? Like nobody else is going to know if I'm being a good guy or a bad guy because they can't see my home unit and whether or not the smart AC is attached. So I'm getting nothing out of being either a good guy or a bad guy. So he put these sign-up sheets up where you'd have to sign up for a, an installation. In apartment buildings and communities where there are public mailboxes or sign-up places, and in one treatment, they were anonymous. You just put your phone number. And in another treatment, you had to put your name on it. And both of them got some people to sign up. But in the one with your name on it, they got three times as many signups. I think almost 10% of people signing up for installation, which sounds small, but it was huge from the, the perspective of the conversion that PG&E needed to get for virtually for free, for the cost of a piece of paper, essentially. And they ended up finding that to get that same effect size, they would have had to offer $175, which wouldn't have been cost effective for PG&E, just with this very simple reputational intervention. So sorry, that was a long-winded example, but it really reflects this idea of like the biggest predictor of whether or not you have solar on your house is not your socioeconomic situation or your education or your age or your gender or your race or any of those things. It's whether or not people around you have solar because of this social influence effect. But that it's very, very, very visible. It's the most visible. Um, what about all these things that are that are less visible? How do we show people that these things are normal and make sure that they can see that they're normal. And that can be a really important tactic in kind of normalizing climate-friendly behaviors, making them visible. This also means, by the way, that it can backfire when we talk about unfavorable stuff, you know, which environmentalists are, are so often guilty of. So you know, if you tell me that only 1% of Americans think climate action is important, I'm going to think there's something weird about that 1%. And more importantly, that it's more socially acceptable for me to side with the 99%. And so that doesn't mean we need to make up statistics or we need to deceive people, but emphasizing the descriptive statistics when they're in our favor can be much more useful than kind of demonstrating to people, look how bad everyone is. Look how bad everyone's doing on this statistic. Shouldn't we be doing better? That doesn't work. In this domain of where existing descriptive norms are not favorable, right? We don't want to emphasize those. How do we deal with that? There's a really interesting new sort of area of research around dynamic norms, norms that are changing. So if we can show that more people are, even if it's still descriptively a low percentage, that it is changing can have a very similar effect to showing descriptive statistics that the majority of people are doing something. I guess a translation of that is telling people that something is becoming more normal is almost as equally effective as telling them something that is normal because we want to go where the herd is going. So if you show us where the herd is going, we want to go meet them there. And that works both ways, right? With bad behaviors and good behaviors. There's a lot of bad behaviors that are invisible that we can get away with. Making those more visible can reduce our incentive to want to 
commit them. Make it trustworthy is the next one. What would be your recommendations when it comes to selecting and utilizing trusted messengers to enhance credibility and trust in a given climate communication effort? Mm, yeah, choose messengers wisely, you know, which also means making sure you know who the trusted messengers are. So it's not who you trust, it's who your audience trusts. You know, re research shows that most people tend to regard climate scientists and immediate family members as most trusted. But of course, I'm sure we can all think of instances where that's not the case. Uh, we've all got, you know, an uncle or something who is not going to trust climate scientists or immediate family members. So it's really finding out who matters to your audience. And um, there's some good research also to show that that messengers who are credible in the sense that they walk the talk are much more effective. And that can be an important insight when thinking about spokespeople. People really care about consistency. Oftentimes, environmental campaigns, they'll take any old celebrity for a spokesperson because they think it's somebody people recognize and therefore it's going to be more effective. But um, I think there's some research to show that hypocrisy is likely to have an even bigger backfire effect. The last of the eight principles that we are kind of using as inspiration for questions is make it for everyone. So how can inclusivity be promoted in climate messaging? And what steps would you recommend communicators take to ensure that environmental initiatives resonate with diverse audiences? You know, on the inclusivity front, a lot of what we've talked about, I think, hits on that. Meet your audience where they are, not where you wish they were. Um, take the time to understand your audience and to tailor your messages. And I guess to tailor the asks, right? You know, make sure that our calls to action are relevant for the audiences to whom we're speaking. So if you've got a, a really activated, really energetic, really passionate audience, maybe they're ready for a message to cut up their credit cards and protest in, in front of Chase Bank or something. But a lot of our audiences, I don't think are ready for that. And, you know, I would say it's not particularly inclusive to expect things of them that they're either, you know, emotionally or cognitively ready to do, or you know, certainly um, from an economic or, or socioeconomic perspective. Some of the highest impact behaviors in the U.S., for instance, are things like new car buyers switching to electric vehicles, huge impact. High frequency business travelers just flying a little bit less, like cutting out one transatlantic flight, massive impact. But it's not relevant to ask people who aren't planning to buy a new car or people who aren't high frequency business travelers to do those things. Food waste, reducing food waste is also a tremendously impactful individual action and everyone is, is eating. <laughs> so, um, you know, that can be potentially more accessible to more audiences. So tailoring the asks to the audience. Um, I think for us, this principle also means, you know, focusing more on where there is consensus than on where there isn't. So making it for everyone means like not overemphasizing the areas where we, we disagree. One massive area committed by the media that we're all 
all too aware of is the sort of two sides nature of the climate debate that has given an unnecessary spotlight to denialist arguments. If we focus too much on where we disagree, we avoid the more important consensus that that probably exists. So that's a little bit what we mean by this sort of make it for everyone principle as well. What's the single most important aspect of communication that we should be paying attention to in our communications endeavors? Classic, uh, classic question. Um, I, I think a lot of these, you know, that we talked about allude to this, but I think to sum it up, you know, I think it's that in spite of what we're sometimes led to believe, people are are social animals. We like to cooperate. We care what other people think about us. We all exist as members of groups. So really focusing on the social influences on our behavior, I think, is is among the most important. You know, humans are probably the best problem-solving species that ever lived, just not a problem like climate change. We're good at solving problems that feel urgent or tangible or on a scale we can understand or really proximate. And climate change can feel like none of those, although, of course, that's changing. So in some ways, you know, to answer your question, the, the most important mindset, I guess, is to be thinking not about, oh, if, if we could just wish that human nature were somehow different, it's about how do we make climate change in how we communicate about it, the type of problem that humans are already good at solving. And a lot of this that we're talking about today, I think, is really focused on that fact. What's the biggest mistake that you see communicators make when attempting to engage the public on climate change issues? To me, the answer to that is sort of this false dichotomy in the public domain that climate change is either an individual or systemic problem. So the persistent narrative can be that, you know, you either believe that the average Joe can solve climate change on his own or that he can't and therefore shouldn't do anything. Um, And I, I have to say I am often surprised, even if I shouldn't be, about the sort of lack of nuanced thinking that reveals. And I think it's a really pernicious and for some reason persistent dichotomy that exists in a lot of our kind of public conversation about how to deal with climate change. I had such a good time talking to Kevin. The eight principles distill so much of the collective knowledge on how to communicate climate change effectively. And obviously, that means they intersect with so many expert insights from previous episodes of this podcast. If you're a regular listener, I'm sure like me, you could draw lines between things Kevin was saying and themes or approaches explored throughout the series so far. I found that incredibly exciting. It really feels like we're onto something, doesn't it? But what in particular stuck with you from this conversation? What will you take from it and apply to your own work? For me, the big one is kind of reframing my role as a communicator of this challenge to one in which I need to present climate change in a way that makes it the kind of challenge that humans are already great at solving. That seems like an amazing shorthand for engaging my brain and my skills in the right way. So that's what I'll be taking with me. But how about you? What did you hear? What will you be incorporating into your communications endeavors? Thanks to Kevin Green for sharing his time and expertise with the show. It was great. You can find links to some relevant resources in the show notes. Thanks also to you for listening to Communicating Climate Change. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts, or by subscribing so you never miss out. If you want to hear more on the role behavioral science can play in this context, check out episode four with Marcos Pelinor. 
You can also find Communicating Climate Change on LinkedIn. And if you think the series would be of interest to friends or colleagues, why not point them in the right direction? Remember, each and every episode attempts to add to our toolkits to help us develop the strategies and the inspiration that we'll need for this unprecedented task. So be sure to stay tuned for more. For anything else, just head over to communicatingclimatechange.com. Until next time, take care.